Well, our reading this evening comes from Romans chapter 12 into chapter 13. If you are familiar with the letter of Romans, as I'm sure many of you are, at this point in the letter, Paul turns from doctrine to application. Uh, That's one of the appealing things about Paul's letters, how he never leaves out applying to the Christians to whom he writes the weighty and marvelous, majestic teaching that he gives them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's very difficult to split up this passage, but I'm going to select certain verses as we make our way through to the end of chapter 13, and our concentration this evening is especially at the end of the passage, verse 11 in particular, drawing also from verses 12 through 14. So let us hear God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. Then Paul goes on to give the metaphor of the body and how we have different gifts and the body is to coordinate together. And we pick up for the sake of our message this evening at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then there follows in the first seven verses our relationship to the powers that be. And we take up the reading at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, the Lord bless this reading of his word. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we could freely open this word, dear Lord, and we ask your blessing on its reading and also that you'll be with Dr. Tim as he brings the message, dear, uh, dear Lord, that you give him everything that he stands in need of and that uh, as your word goes out, it accomplishes what you have in mind, that we'll worship a, a loving Savior, Father, that you sent at just the right time uh, to fulfill your law in love. And dear Lord, we just pray that uh, wherever this word goes out tonight, that hearts will be softened and, uh, and lives changed, Father. This in the precious name of our Savior alone we pray. Amen. 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 Well, let us turn for our consideration this evening to Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I dare to suggest that in any congregation uh, professing to be Christian, and I don't think Little Farms is any different, there are three types of people. There are those who are spiritually dead, who are yet to have a new nature, who are physically alive. You can see it. But are yet to be made alive by the Holy Spirit. And of course, I want to say that I don't have any inside information on that. But I'm saying that there are the spiritually dead who are yet to be given the gifts of repentance and of faith. They are in church, but not yet in Christ. And then there's a second category of people who are both physically alive and spiritually alive. They have been brought to life by the Holy Spirit. They have been granted the gifts of repentance unto God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet perhaps for a period of their lives have been asleep, drowsy, dormant, inactive. And then there's a third category of people who are spiritually alive. They perhaps have known what it is to be drowsy, what it is to be slothful, what it is to be sleepy. But right now they are on fire for the Lord and they are eager to do God's will, to do it in God's way and to do it in God, for God's glory. Well, as we come to this text tonight, we come to a text which brings us to the whole metaphor of sleep, which is found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And to summarize very quickly what the Bible says about this metaphor, it says two things. First of all, that if we are in Christ, we must not go to sleep. Paul writes about this in another of his letters in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. He says, let us not sleep as do others, but let us be sober. But that's not what's going on in the text here. What's going on in the text is that God's people are passing through a long night and they need to wake up. 
And so Paul is saying that these Roman Christians, they need to be alert to the day in which they live so that they can take advantage of the calling that God has placed upon their lives to be faithful witnesses unto the glory and the grace of God in their time and place. And so I pray that as we come to this passage tonight, that God would use this text as he will, according to where I am personally, according to where you are personally. That if we are alive in Christ, that we might go into a new season of ministry, not in some state of drowsiness and dreariness and inactivity, but with some sense of the unction of the Holy Spirit undergirding our testimony so that the season of ministry that is before us, notwithstanding all the complications of this surreal situation we've been going through, it might be a vibrant season of the church working together, filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, with a burning desire to see God glorified, to see his people uplifted, and to see the elect in the community brought to salvation in this place. I don't have to tell you, as those who watch the news, that we are in a critically important phase in American history. But it's as the church goes, so goes the nation. I do not have the opportunity to speak to the nation, but I do have this evening an opportunity to speak to the church. And so we see the relevance of the text by observing two matters. First of all, where we are headed. You may have heard me say some of this before, but it bears repeating. We are clearly headed back to paganism. Pastor Bob has been alluding to this, and I'm alluding to it again. We see something of this on the news day by day of the throwing off of the Christian heritage that we have in America. And it's not only in America, it's in the United Kingdom, it's throughout Europe. A throwing off of what we have known. I think it was quite significant in Portland during the summer that along with the American flag were burned Bibles. The idea among some being that America is so influenced by the Christian church, so influenced by the Holy Scriptures, that in order to revolutionize America, what you have to do is get rid of the Christian church, and you have to get rid of the Bible, and above all, you have to get rid of Jesus Christ. And we're asking, how did this happen? Well, it's been happening for 200 years, and it's only now becoming very clear as the pieces of the jigsaw come together. So over the last 200 years since the late 18th century and what we call the Enlightenment, there's been an intellectual assault on the Christian faith. Oh, at the time of the Enlightenment, they believed that, uh, at least before the Enlightenment began, that yes, there's such a thing as truth, and we can access this truth by depending upon God's revelation, believing in the revelation, and thereby we come by the way of truth. And then the Enlightenment came along with what was called the philosophes and said, well, we still believe in truth, but we don't believe in revelation, and so we don't trust this revelation. What we do is we use our autonomous human reasoning, and we say... 
we can work out the truth for ourselves. And it doesn't matter if it no longer accords with what the Bible teaches because we are lords over the Bible and we can say what is true and what is not true. I've been putting books away for the last week. And I came across a gift that was given to me, the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And what did Jefferson do? Vintage, enlightenment thinker in this regard. He took hold of the Bible and he says, well, in my terms of my autonomous human reasoning, I have the right to take, metaphorically speaking, a pair of scissors and to cut out of the Bible the things that I don't like. Perhaps the harsh sayings from my vantage point. I don't want them. I don't want the supernatural in there. So I cut that out as well. And so you have this really thin Jefferson Bible. But we are living in what is called the postmodern era where we have said, well, actually, we're going to go further than the modern age and we're going to say, there's no such thing as truth. Truth is just what social groupings make up. So the Christian church, they've been making up their own truth for centuries. But why should they have a monopoly on truth? And so we want our truth as the lesbian and gay community. And we'll create our truth. We want our truth. We're Antifa. We want our truth. And so whereas before society was held together by a general view that God exists and that man is accountable to God, that God is truth, and we can access this truth. Now there is no such thing as truth. We all make it up. Everybody does what is right in his own eyes. That's what I call the intellectual assault on the Christian faith. And we're heading back to paganism, not simply because the assault has been intellectual, but because it's been ethical. Paul teaches us in this letter to the Romans that God has written on our hearts the law of God. But man now says that's not the case. Man now says, I have the right in my autonomous human reason to say what is right and what is wrong if I'm obliged at all to say what is right and what is wrong. And so we choose our lifestyles. And when we've chosen our lifestyles and chosen the sins that we prefer ourselves to engage in, then we can reorganize ethics around what's convenient to me so that I am in the right and others in the wrong, chiefly those Christians who still abide by the Ten Commandments. And in order for that to work, we have not only to have our own ethical code, we have to make the chief sum of that ethical code the doctrine of tolerance. Because if others out there can tolerate my ethical code, then I can live the way I want to live. And then there's been the political assault. Once you start saying that God is not on his throne, once you start saying that man has become as God, you are then out of the realm of limited government. You are into dangerous territory with regard to dictatorships and totalitarian regimes whereby they say, we are God, God is not God. And so what is happening in China today? Well, you see the Chinese pitting the Chinese government as God on the throne now comes along and demolishes Christian churches. Now comes along and says, you Christians, you cannot have your Bible. You need a Bible that coordinates with what the Communist Party believes. 
And if you are living in an outlying village and you do not doff your cap to the Chinese government, you won't get your funding. You won't get your benefits. And then there is the religious assault. Because we are the ones left saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And in this world of 24-7 news coverage, where we're aware of what is happening in different parts of the world, we are the ones who are at odds with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, because we say, God is so holy, God is so great, that in his mercy and his grace, he has given us one way to enter into heaven. And because that way works, we don't need any other way. And some religions will say, Okay, we can live with that. We'll just ignore the Christians. And others say, no, that's not good enough. We need to destroy Jesus Christ. And how do we destroy Jesus Christ? We destroy Jesus Christ by destroying his people. And so what did Francis Schaeffer say? I believe it's in his work, The Christian Manifesto. The Christian church, he pled, has been asleep. Why have we been asleep? He said, well, the problem was this. We Christians looked at what was happening in the culture, what was happening in the media, and we saw these things as individually, individual pieces isolated from one another. And so we looked at a law being passed, and we said, oh, that's such a shame. Whether it be Roe v. Wade, whatever it be. And then we looked at another law. We said, such a shame, that's not what we believe. And now we're at a point in which we're seeing all these isolated pieces as a jigsaw spread out on a table with all the pieces mingled together and now the jigsaw's coming together and we begin to say, oh, there was a plan, there was an agenda behind this all along. And we're now looking at the jigsaw as it's being completed and we're saying we're not sure we really like the picture that's being painted by this jigsaw. So we're headed back into paganism. And we're asleep at the time in which it's happening. And that is the greatest concern, I think, of the present day. How are we asleep? Well, instead of standing out from the community, and I'm talking about the church broadly, we've brought into the ethics of the wider culture so that the church now looks like the culture rather than the culture looking like the church. We've not only lost our distinctiveness as saints called out from the world to worship God, but we've lost our urgency because we cannot stand far enough apart from the world to see the world and to see what's happening. And so our prayer meetings are empty or non-existent. Our denominations are in disarray. And our evangelism is negligible. We're headed back to paganism. But there's good news. Second thing I want to say by way of introduction, where the Roman Christians were headed. You see, they are headed out of paganism. The gospel has already come to Rome. Paul is writing about the year 57 AD. Rome is well on its way to the height of its power in 117 AD. 
and the Christian community has become set up in the city of Rome. And so Paul, as he opens this letter, he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. In other words, they've been set apart at the very capital of the Roman Empire. And here they are. And it's to them that Paul writes. And so he gives the opening chapters of his letter and he says, this is the world in which you live. This is the world that God has called you to conquer. It's a world of great irreligion, chapter 1. It's a world of great false religion, chapter 2. And yet, over the next centuries, these humble, lowly Christians so transformed the Roman Empire that by the year 313 AD, the Edict of Milan after 10 great persecutions, Christianity was finally tolerated. And then you go on to 380, and the Edict of Thessalonica, whereby Christianity then becomes the formally recognized religion of the Roman Empire. And so we're wondering, well, how did that happen? Going from being squeezed by paganism, squeezed by false religion, then to go on to become the religion of the Roman Empire. And I think some of the answer lies in this text before us this evening. You see, the Roman Empire ended in 476 in the West. It ended in 1453 in the East. But Christ's reign goes on. And from Rome, all roads leading to Rome, but also all roads leading away from Rome, the gospel spread throughout the empire. So we would do well then to heed what Paul tells us here in verse 11. And I want to draw from this text three points. First of all, we are to know the time presently. Paul says, besides this, you know the time. He expects the Christians to understand the days in which they live. For two reasons. First of all, because it's a time of persecution. As Christ's reign spread, so did the persecution of the Christian church. First of all, by the Jews. So having crucified Jesus, the Jewish authorities persecuted his followers. You can trace this through the book of Acts. And Pastor Bob has asked me to teach a Sunday school on the book of Acts in the coming, the coming months. You see the persecution, the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And then you go into Acts chapter 8, and a great persecution breaks out, and the Christians are scattered abroad. But it all begins with tension between the Jews who rejected Christ and the Christians who received Christ, and so bad did this tension become that you read in Acts chapter 18 verse 2 that the emperor Claudius actually put the Jews out of Rome because of their opposition, the constant rioting. And at the heart of the opposition was the opposition to Christ being taught in the synagogues. But you see, as this tension broke out between the Jews and the Christians, then the Romans started observing what was happening. You see, Rome had protected the Jews by law. But two things happened. 
First of all, the Romans observed that the Jews were actually persecuting the Christians. So how could the Christians be protected by the law that protected the Jews? And then the Gentiles start coming into this religion that we call Judaism. And so the Romans deduced that Christianity and Judaism must be different religions. And therefore, Christianity lost its protection by Roman law. So they followed between this first century and the third century, when Christianity becomes the formal religion of the empire, ten great persecutions. And by the time Paul is writing here in AD 57, the persecution has already begun. And shortly, within a period of years, Nero is going to ignite Rome and he's going to blame the Christians. And so Paul is writing to people who are prepared to be persecuted for the faith. He's writing to those who someday soon will be ignited, set alight, alive. And put as torches in Nero's garden parties. So that all those attending the party can actually see while Christians are burning to death while those parties are going on. He says it's a time of persecution. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but unless God mightily intervenes in America, that is coming too. Once you start burning Bibles, which may still classify as harassment or what we call low-grade persecution, we are not far from physical persecution. High-grade persecution, imprisonments, people put to death. It was a time of persecution. But secondly, it was a time of prosecution, prosecuting the gospel so that the gospel gets out there. You would think, given that the Christians, after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would think that they would withdraw rapidly into a ghetto, and they tried to do that. And then the great persecution came, which nudged them out of Jerusalem, and everywhere they went, they went gossiping the gospel. And so Paul is saying, you know the time, that this is not a time to slink away and to try and evade, circumnavigate, Owning up to being a Christian. This is a time to publicly own Jesus Christ. This is a time to be bold in your faith. This is a time to be unashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a particular reason why I want you to be bold for Christ. And if you put the passages in the New Testament together, you can figure out why that's the case. Think of Paul's past. Up until this point, he's not visited the church in Rome. Three times in chapter 1, he says, listen, I would have come to you. I would have come to you. And he senses that some there are saying, oh, you see, the Apostle Paul, he's a bit of a chicken. He can go to Thessalonica, he can go to Ephesus, he can go to Corinth, but he's not going to come to the capital of the Roman Empire. And that is why then, that when he comes to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. He's saying, in effect, I'm not afraid to come to the capital of the known world. I'm not afraid to come to the next block from Nero. But there are certain things that I have to do first. And so if you turn over to Romans 15, you find out 
that he's writing from Corinth. We know that from chapter 16, verse 23. He's in the city of uh, Corinth, and if you compare Romans 16, verse 23, with 2 Timothy 4, 20, you learn that Erastus lived at Corinth, and in fact, even to this day, Erastus' name as the treasurer of the city is in the concrete for having sponsored a pavement there. But writing from Corinth, west to the church in Rome, he says in chapter 15, verses 24 to 26, first of all, I need to go further to the east, to Jerusalem. Why? Well, you see, there are Christians there who are starving. There's a famine. I need to feed them. I've been collecting for the poor saints week by week. Churches have been making collections, laying aside funds on the first day of the week, and I'm going to take those funds, I'm going to give them to the poor saints in Jerusalem, and once I've done that, I'm going to be making my way all the way from the east of the empire right to the west of the empire to Spain, which you read of also in chapter 15. So why is he writing Romans? Well, you see, up until this point in his ministry, having been sent out from the church in Antioch in Syria in the east, he has been using the church in Antioch in Syria as a base of operations. So he goes on a missionary journey, then he comes back to Antioch in Syria. He goes out again, then he comes back. But if now he's going to take the gospel all the way to Spain in the west of the empire then the church in Antioch in Syria to the east is too far removed. And so he's writing then to the Christians in Rome and saying, listen, I need you on board because I cannot minister in Spain unless I have the church in Rome doing for the ministry what the church in Antioch in Syria has done previously. And I'm going to come back and forth, Rome to Spain, Rome to Spain. And that is why then, Having come to that very dire point in chapter 3 of Romans, says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. He then goes on in chapters 4 and 5 to talk about how we can know the justifying grace of God by resting solely in Christ alone for our forgiveness and for our pardon. But those who are united to Christ and therefore come by the benefit of justifying grace also come by the benefit of sanctifying grace. It's like you have a flower pot here. Pretend the flower pot is union with Christ. And there's one plant rises from that. But the different branches of that plant are inseparable because they are united to the stalk which goes down into the one pot. And so it is with justification and sanctification. You cannot claim to be justified before the face of God unless you are also sanctified by God. In other words, set apart from the world unto God, as a result of which we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a time of prosecuting the gospel. And that's very relevant for us too also. Because you see, we've been very comfortable, haven't we? We've just said, well, let's just open the church doors, 
It's the responsibility of the people to come through the open doors. And it's not our fault if they don't come into the doors. And Paul says, is that really the Great Commission? These people had every reason to just hide away in the catacombs. Just keep out of sight, fly under the radar. And Paul is saying, no, I need you to be a proactive church. Proactive in Rome, proactive in terms of the ministry committed to my trust. And so I put it to us this evening that if we are to head back out of the paganism that is coming, the gospel must be known and spread. We have to make a concrete decision that we are not going to become a Christian ghetto in Marne and Coopersville. We are not going to hide away and just hope this storm blows over. It's not going to. If we do that, we just aid and abet the society heading to paganism. Rather, what the New Testament comes to us and says, no, no, no. We need to be proactive. We need to be active. The Great Commission does not say come. It says go. Listen to the British evangelist Leonard Ravenhill. Could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can we sit in Zion with the world around us damned? You see, if we see these alternative tribal groupings in society simply as our enemies, we're not going to win anybody for the Lord Jesus. But this is why Paul goes on in Romans 12 and 13 to say, love your enemies. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Because you cannot be at war against individuals in society and love them into the kingdom. Yes, there's a place for contending earnestly for the faith amongst the movers and shakers, the blind leaders of the blind. And you find that difference in Jesus' ministry that when he's dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes, his level and his tone of language is so different than when he's speaking to the ordinary Pharisees, ordinary, ordinary Jews. And so it must be with us. We operate at two levels, earnestly contending for the faith against the movers and the shakers in society. But when we come across the blind leaders of the blind, what do we see them? A sheep without a shepherd as those to whom we can minister the gospel of God's rich grace. So we are to know the time presently. It's a time of persecution. It's a time of prosecution. And then secondly, the second half of verse 11, we are to know the time spiritually. Notice what Paul says here. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. We awake not only to speak, but to do. And so Paul tells them not only why they must be awake, but how they are to be awake and alert. And he gives them three movements that they are to follow through on. And we are familiar with each of them, but writing to Rome, Paul has especially in mind the soldier. You see, the first movement is we cast off. The second movement, we put on. The third movement, we walk properly. 
And he envisions this scenario in which we're coming through a long night and we go into the day. The first thing we do is we cast off, verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is not thinking of, and I was once here, a teenager, trying to stay in bed as long as he can. He's thinking of somebody energetically getting out of bed, pulling back the bedclothes, jumping out of bed. And he especially has in mind the soldier who would do that. So we literally put from us And what do we put from us? The works of darkness. And Paul mentions some of what happens under darkness. Revelries, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy. As he puts it in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so Paul asks these Roman Christians, and he asks us tonight, are there things in our lives which are sucking the energy out of the vibrancy of our Christian living that need to be flung off us as we come through a long night into the day. Sins which need mortifying, situations from which we need to run. That's the first movement. Then the second movement, second half of verse 12, we are to put on, put on the armor of light No sooner are we up than we get dressed, and we get dressed in the armor. And of course, our minds go to Ephesians 6, where Paul deals with the same issue at greater length. Ephesians 6, 13 to 17. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for our feet, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. We think also of Paul's description in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 7. He pictures himself as having weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So he's saying to these Christians in Rome, listen, the Christian life is not a sleep, it's a battle, says James Denny. The most useful Christians are those who are up for the battle, heading towards it armored. And I'm not the first one to have observed this, that the battle armor given the soldier in Ephesians 6 is all for the front, going towards the battle, not running away from it. The third movement, we walk properly, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul, therefore, commends lives which are open and can be seen. We are, he says, people of the day, not people of the night. In other words, as Pastor Bob said this morning, do our our neighbors know that we are Christians? Are we people living open and unembarrassed lives as the Lord's people? And such lives are not shady, skulking around in shame. Our lives, rather, are open books, for we are, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, epistles known and read of all men. But if they're not shady, they're not fearful lives either. God has given us the armor, 
And it is because we have the armor and through faith we put it on at the beginning of the day. We go out believing we are God's soldiers, doing God's business in God's way for God's glory. And so while in the church we describe ourselves as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we talk about the communion of the saints, we talk about the church family, when we head out of these doors on a Sunday night, we go as soldiers of the cross. We're not going to be contentious, but we are going to contend for the faith. I am told, my brother was in the armed forces, saw some difficult service in Northern Ireland during the troubles there with what the Irish Republican Army would call freedom fighters, what the British forces would call terrorists. So I cannot speak of a battle personally. But what I'm told is this. The most effective soldiers in a battle are the ones who believe they are already dead. And because they believe that they are already dead, that they are not coming home, that frees them, that liberates them to go into the battle, to fight the battle. They don't go into the battle thinking, well, if I go here, I might get hit. If I go here, I might get bombed. They say, I have a task to do, I do the task. And if I don't come home at the end of it, I don't come home. And it's the same for the Christian. If we think that we still have our own lives. We will go into our vocations trying to be what is called in America today, risk aversive. How can I be a Christian in such a way that I don't get persecuted? How can I be a Christian in such a way that nobody takes the mick out of me, as we'd say in Britain, the Michael? And what Paul comes along as somebody who ended up giving his life for the Lord Jesus, beheaded on the Appian Way outside of Rome from so far as we know. He says, believer, if you are going to be effective in helping the church get out of paganism, one thing we need to know, that we are already dead. Isn't that what Paul says, Colossians 3.3? You are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Go back to Romans 6. You died with Christ, so that when you say and verbally profess, and when I do so, I am a Christian, what I am saying in effect is, I am dead to myself. You know, you've been very generous to us as a ministry and as a congregation. And one of the roles of From His Fullness is to bring back stories of people we meet living on the front line. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there is a massive difference of outlook between the way in which believers are living in places like Pakistan, in places like the Congo, 
in places like East Africa than what we are found finding here in America. You see, we've been sucked into the culture, and the culture says your life is still your own. You can pick and choose how you're going to serve the Lord Jesus. But when somebody in some of these countries profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're basically saying, I am dead. And I might as well get used to the fact, and Christ is my all. And so that brings us then to the third thing tonight. We are to know the time personally, the last part of verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So finally, Paul tells the Roman Christians when they are to be alert. And he says, as soon as possible. There's no time to waste. This sense of urgency then comes with knowing three things. First of all, we need to know that we believe. You see, Paul is assuming, he's making a great assumption here, isn't he? He says, your salvation is now nearer than when you first believed, but he's never been to this church. Oh, he knows people in the church, but he's never been there. So how can he make this sweeping statement since you first believed? And the reason how he can make that statement is, you don't belong to a church that's being persecuted unless you're all in for Christ. But we cannot make that assumption. Why cannot we make that assumption? Well, you see, it was socially advantageous in America and Britain as well to say, I will attach myself to the Christian church because there's something respectable about that. But now we're realizing that's all going away. Books are being written about people leaving the church, quitting, already gone, unchristian, a whole generation of people going away because they've lost the social advantage of belonging to the Christian church. And we are told that once this coronavirus is done, one in five churches will go out of existence. And what is God doing? I'm not a prophet, but it seems to me that what he is doing is pruning his church of numbers so that there might be quality of faith. And so I say to you tonight, if you are in the church but not in Christ, can you say, that your salvation is now nearer than when you first believed. Oh, you may come to faith in Christ gradually. You may come to faith in Christ suddenly. But what Paul assumes is that if you are in the church, you have come to hear how you may rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ and put your all in with Christ who first gave his all for you and for me. He says, secondly, we know what we believe. You see, he's, he's taught them the gospel, chapters 1 through 8. Why? Because he wants them to know what is the gospel he's going to be speaking on in Spain. And they need to know that. But they also need to know it so that when they go out into the marketplace in Rome, when they walk past Roman soldiers, when they are identified as Christians, when a reason is asked for why they are Christ's, they can say, this is what he's done for me. I was in this world. But God, by his electing grace, he set his love upon me. And I am a sinner just like you're a sinner. 
But I have experienced the justifying grace of God so that through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, my sins can be covered. The wrath of God against me has been turned away because of Christ. And because of him, I'm united to him. I'm separated from the world. I've been brought into union with him. And I've been adopted into the family of God. This is why I'm a believer. And you can't evangelize unless you have some idea of what God has done for you. And nor can I. And some sense of thrill about what God has done for me. What God has done for you. And then thirdly, we know why we believe. We sense our meeting with Jesus is upcoming sooner than we think. Yes, personally, when we leave this scene. But Paul's reference is to the salvation. And he points to the Lord's return. And he's asking these Roman Christians, as he's asking us tonight, as we go into this new chapter of ministry in the fall, and as we look at the news and all that's upcoming, and he's saying to me and he's saying to you, are you all in for Christ? Are you saying to yourself, yes, I died with Christ. So I'm all in with Christ because I know that I am dead to myself. If we know our lives are going to be saved, spiritually, corporeally, why would we not throw everything into being what Christ has called us to be. I've had to do a lot of soul searching about this myself over the last years. When an invitation comes in, can you come and teach us in Pakistan? Can you come to the Congo? Well, we've had Ebola, we've got malaria, You've got people being kidnapped and shot. Am I all in? Oh, yes, you have to use wisdom. Yes, I know that. But am I going to say to people who have fled their home country, am I going to say to people, whose church was bombed in Afghanistan, near the border of Afghanistan, and I believe 700 were killed. Sorry, I, I can't come, it's too dangerous. Oh, I can make a case for it, but I know in my own mind whether I'm making a case that's convenient to me because I'm not all in with Christ. And I have to stand before God. And I have to ask, if Christ took my attitude to my salvation, would he have ever gone to the cross? I'm challenged. 
And Paul challenges these Roman Christians and he's challenging us tonight. Let me end with this. I may have told you before, but I love the story. When my father was a minister in Wales, as a young man, I find it hard to believe, but he owned three goats. And he was going out to feed the goats in the backyard of his manse, the pastors, or the parsonage, some call it. And as he walks out into the backyard, he hears this voice coming across the fields from high up. Peter Trumper, your time is up. And he looks up thinking the Lord is drawing near. Well, what it turned out to be was his friend driving down over the hill sees my father walk out into the yard and he happens to have a megaphone in the back of the car so he pulls over and he's shouting to him over the hills, Peter Trumper, your time is up. But you know what struck that man? Is that the first thing my father did was look to see if the Lord was coming. That's how he interpreted his response. And that, says Paul, is how we are to live. The Lord is coming. The salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. If we claim to be Christians, let's know that we are dead. And that knowledge that we are dead is what will free us to serve as those who are alive in Christ. May God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that the times are changing in which we live. That the country that we love and have been born and brought up in is changing. And we are wondering how to respond as Christians. And so we ask you, O oh God, for the grace to be all that you intend us to be. Father, we pray for ourselves as those who are alive in Christ, that we would not be drowsy, that we would not be sleepy, but that we would be fully alert, wearing the armor of light, not simply confident that the gates of hell will not come against the church, but rather as the church will be pressing against the gates of hell. And Father, we pray tonight for any who are here who as of yet are dead in their trespasses and sins, that by a mighty movement of your Spirit, you will bring them from death to life, and that they too would live lives fully alert to the fact that Christ is returning in power and in great glory. Bless this family, we pray, and help us to go into the week wearing the armor and to see what you can do in us and through us and all for your glory's sake. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.